The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. With Pastor Bill's prayer, that reminder of, of just all of the little things that we do take for granted that, we're, um, that we ought to be thankful to the Lord for. You know, something that, that we take for granted is slides. I have no slides for you this morning. I, I point that out mostly so you don't think the audio-video people are, are uh, slacking and forgetting to do their job. But uh, the, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. You have no slides this morning. You have to focus. Laser focus. <laughs> Pretend you're living 100 years ago. Well, last week, we're in uh, Acts chapter 3. Uh, Turning your Bibles there, we're going to be looking at verses 11 through the end of the chapter, uh, 11 to 26. Remember last week we, we read about the man who uh, was lame from birth, 40 years of suffering, sitting at the temple gate, begging for money, and Peter and John, they're on their way into the temple, they stop look at the man, tell him to look at, look at them. And Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. It's amazing, isn't it? Incredible story. It's an undeniable miracle. Hundreds of people have seen this man sitting in the same place for years. And now he's walking and leaping and praising God. And we read that, that the people are filled with, of course, the, as they should be, they're filled with wonder, with amazement. What's going on here? We know this guy. All eyes are on Peter and John. It's a captive audience. The perfect opportunity for them to speak. And before we read God's word, let's, let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, you are the healer of our souls. You are the one deserving all attention, all praise. And I pray that you will be glorified this morning as we, as we read, as we think about you and the hope that we have in you. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Lord, please open our eyes this morning so that we might continue to look to you and to praise you and to hope in you. We pray because of you, Jesus. Amen. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Again, in Acts chapter 3, 11 through 26. Oh, I don't have the prompt for you at the end of this, do I? Do you remember? This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Okay. Beginning with verse 11. While he, this man who had been leaping around praising God, clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, 
that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets whom who have spoken from Samuel And those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is God's word. You may be seated. So this, this healing is not a small thing, is it? It's, it's public. It's undeniable because the people know this man. Verse 10 tells us that they recognized him. They knew this man. He was a fixture in their daily routine. The man who always sat by the beautiful gate of the temple. Verse 10 tells us they were filled with wonder and amazement. Then verse 11 says that they were utterly astounded and they they ran to see. And Peter knew why this happened. He knew why this man was healed. He knew who deserved the glory, and he knew that this was an opportunity to speak to a captivated audience about something much more important than even this healing. What could be more important than a man with a disability made whole? To rightly see the whole of Scripture, to see that God had a plan all along to save people through his Son. The very one they rejected and killed. The one who is gracious and forgiving. The one who will bring times of refreshing. Giving us a a, a taste of a great day to come. When sin will actually be no more. Peter had bigger things on his mind than taking credit for himself. And starting up a lucrative healing ministry. He... He knew that Jesus was the source of this man's healing. He knew that all eyes were on him. And that this was an opportunity to share the gospel. As a silly... Something that came to mind is... I don't know if you saw last Monday night football. Chargers. um, Their kicker pulled a hamstring, I think, early on. And so he kept having to kick. He had made four field goals with a pulled hamstring. He's like going to the ground after each, after each kick. Kick the winning field goal in overtime. The reporter comes up to him. And we've seen this before. But it just, it, I don't know, something about his demeanor and the way he said it. She asked, you know, how, how did you do that in such pain, obvious pain and everything? And he's like, you know, before I answer your question, I just want to stop and give thanks to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we've seen that before, but it just makes me think all eyes are on him. He had this opportunity, and he speaks of Jesus. This is what Peter does. This is what we have opportunities to do as well. You know, yes, it's the guy kicking. Yes, Peter said the words. Yes, it's you doing your job well or praying for someone or sharing the gospel and the come to know the Lord. It's Jesus. It's through him. It's for his glory. We live for his glory. 
So when we think of the Jews during Jesus' earthly ministry, one of the one of the most telling contrasts is this realization that that the same people who are waving the palm branches, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. These same people in a matter of days are shouting, crucify him. Why is that? And, and we know, we've, we've, we've talked about their wrong expectations. That's kind of what we come back to. They had wrong expectations of Jesus. They were thinking too small, really. They were thinking about an overthrow of Rome, and they simply wanted to to make Israel great again. Why? Why did they have these wrong expectations? They didn't know the scriptures. Oh, they, they read it. They they had big chunks of it memorized, much more than we do. But they didn't have eyes to see. They didn't know, really, what to, they were blind to what to look for, how to rightly interpret it. You know, at yesterday's uh, Delder meeting, that's what we call our monthly meetings of deacons and elders, our Delder meeting, uh, Justin Knight led a, a really good teaching. And one of the statements that he made stood out to me. It said, God's word is not a self-help manual. God's word is not a self-help manual. Now, we can certainly learn a lot of things that, that help us and, and make us more moral and better parents and better workers and help us to grow. And, um, but the point is, The Bible is not intended to be a collection of moral lessons. And we shouldn't approach it looking for little nuggets to help us cope or be a better person. We need to see that the Bible is is ultimately, it's one story given to us by God. Yes, God used several people over several hundred years to write the 39 books of the Old Testament, which is what they had. And we have the 27 that make up the new. But God is the one who spoke through these men. God is the one who is the ultimate author. And he's telling his story of redemption. Think of it. Great stories have a long history or a, or a long struggle that gives a depth of meaning to characters and, and relationships within the story. One of the first books I ever read as a young boy was Where the Red Fern Grows. Anybody read that? Um, did you cry? Of course you cried. Why did you cry? Well, if the boy just had some dogs given to him and, you know, you know the story. It, it covers a long period of time in this boy's life. But mostly you cry over the story because of this long struggle. The work, the struggle, the sacrifice that it took for this little boy to save up money to buy his two hunting dogs. And the time and the struggle cause you to care. To love this relationship. To be emotionally invested over these, these characters in this book. There's a depth of love that, that you'd never feel if there wasn't some waiting. Some longing, some struggle. It's what makes for a great story. It's why... So many people remember and were invested in the 1970s miniseries Roots. It wasn't the typical show of the day. It wasn't the half-hour sitcom that's shallow. We watched week after week as it covered several generations of pain and struggle. And each generation is, is shaped by the previous one. It's epic. It's grand. 
And God's the best author of all. He invented story. Every great story reflects how he tells his story. And now in Acts 3, we read a story about a man who is healed. And it's great in in and of itself because we can imagine 40 years of suffering. But Peter takes this opportunity to connect that to a story that's so much bigger than his 40 years of struggle. To history, to redemptive history, to prophecy. Not just one man's restoration of health for a time, but God's plan concerning us. We're in the story. Us, forever. It's an opportunity for Peter to share God's glory, God's story. And there are, there are four features. Pretend there are, there's a slide here to show you that. There are four features that communicate um, about what he's communicating here in his sermon. The first is an Old Testament hermeneutic. Some of you are, Herman who? Hermeneutic. It, it, it's, it means interpretation. It's the, the method of interpreting. That there's a right method for understanding what the author wants to communicate. So think about you, you you write a letter or you write a story, you intend to communicate something. You have a you have an intent, a purpose in mind. There's there's a message that you have in mind when you write. You're expressing something. And if people read it and then tell you something altogether different, which I've had said to me after some sermons, um But if someone were to read your letter, your story, and tell you something altogether different from what you intended, even if it's good, even if it's helpful, still you would say that they misunderstood. It's a wrong interpretation of what you intended to communicate. The same is true with God and his word. We, We need to, as Paul tells Pastor Timothy, rightly handle the word of truth. It's not some wax nose that we can shape however we think it should look. It's it's God's story. Yes, there are 40 different authors over hundreds of years on three different continents, three different languages, but all scripture is breathed out by God And it's profitable for us. It's breathed out by God through these men. We are blessed to possess all of God's word. And we benefit from the apostles' teachings which make up the New Testament. And our New Testaments show us how Jesus fulfills redemptive history. This is what Peter's doing here. This is why he begins his sermon referring to the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. He's a, he's a Jew. He's identifying with them. This, these, are, these are our fathers, the, God, our, the same God. It's their history, their story that God's been communicating, telling them and us what's coming, giving promises, covenant promises that point to and are fulfilled in Jesus. Peter um, and the disciples, they didn't always see this, did they? We read our Gospels and we scratch our heads and think that they're dense, that they don't understand what Jesus is saying. That was true. Peter didn't always see it, but now he does. Because he sat under Jesus' teaching. He witnessed his ministry and work. He received the Holy Spirit, the helper that Jesus promised to send. And Jesus pointed out this hermeneutic, this method of interpretation, after he rose from the dead, during those 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. This is what Jesus was doing. Giving them a biblical hermeneutic, an Old Testament hermeneutic. We see Jesus teaching this, this this method of interpreting the Old Testament as he walked with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, right? 
Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And he said that because they were, they were depressed and confused because they thought Jesus was the one and then he died and they didn't see. They, weren't, they didn't have a right understanding of how to interpret the Old Testament and Jesus is telling this. And then it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus pointed this out to his disciples. And now, now Peter's just, he's doing the same thing. He's doing the same thing. But let's remember who Peter's talking to. He's giving Jews and their priests and leaders a lesson. This fisherman is giving them a lesson about the right way of interpreting their own scriptures. How offended they must have been. Who is this guy? Well, he just healed this man. Must be from God, right? That's the point of it. He's saying to them, you missed the most vital, central point. As redemptive history built and built and built toward the fulfillment of God's promised Messiah, that they were the very generation to see him. And they missed it. They not only missed it, but they actively denied him. They rejected him. They they killed their own Messiah. So this is a gutsy sermon that Peter's given. He's saying, you don't even know how to read the very scriptures that your lives revolve around. You don't have eyes to see what's at the core of this. It's a brave sermon. But it's the truth. And these very people hated and killed the embodiment of truth. They hated Jesus and Jesus told them, they hate me, they're going to hate you. And we see this in chapter 4, what the result of of Peter's brave, gutsy sermons. They throw him into, into jail for a day. They're annoyed with him. So we don't tend to speak to audiences like this. Certainly we're far removed from the actual people who shouted crucify him. But the consequences of sharing the gospel have historically resulted in the same kind of reaction. Martyrdom, persecution, hatred, stamping out the light, trying to. So when we have the opportunity, will we speak? Will we say, just a minute, I'll answer your question, but I just want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to give him glory. Let me tell you about God's son, Jesus, and share the gospel. It's offensive, but it's true. It's, It's love and forgiveness and guaranteed hope for the future. It's worth any persecution because this life is fleeting and it promises life everlasting. Some of these people actually killed Jesus only weeks ago. Jesus who in their mind was a threat to Judaism. In their wrong thinking they were defending the name of of the God of Abraham when they crucified him. But Peter's opening words are intentionally designed to emphasize that Christianity is rooted in the Old Testament. And even and especially with Abraham. Peter's giving them an interpretive key to understanding their own scriptures, the Old Testament. This is why he mentions Moses. Not simply a a leader, but a leader like Jesus. A type of Jesus mediating between the people and God. Moses who said, the Lord will provide someone like me, but greater. And if you don't listen to that prophet, you'll be destroyed. That's what Moses said. This is why he mentions Samuel, who prophesied about the royal line of King David, a a king whose throne shall be established forever in Jesus. This is why he mentions Abraham 
whose offspring is the offspring, Jesus. Jesus, the offspring who would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. The covenant made with Abraham is not replaced with the new covenant. It's fulfilled in the new covenant. And we see the fruit of this at Pentecost. What just happened at Pentecost? The nations gather to hear the gospel and receive the greatest blessing of all. All the nations are blessed through Abraham's offspring, Jesus. That's what's happening. Peter is giving them a summary of what the story of redemption has been from the beginning. God covenanting, promising salvation to his people through faith in the coming Messiah, who is Jesus. And an interpretive key to the Old Testament is that there is always, there is always a deeper meaning behind its symbolisms that find its fulfillment in the new. Edmund Clowney, who wrote a, a terrific book titled The Unfolding Mystery, put it this way. He said, the Old Testament history is not complete in itself, but provides analogies that an, anticipate the greater realization of the new. This is, why, this is why we love our curriculum, our children's curriculum in Sunday school here, that, that tell Yes, our children need to know these biblical stories. They need to tell these biblical stories, but they, they should have a right Old Testament hermeneutic when it's dealing with these Old Testament stories. They should point to God as the hero giving us Jesus. As much as we, we may want our children to be, to be nice and to share and to be good and obey, to be courageous like David, it's not a self-help manual. These stories are not complete in themselves. They are analogies that anticipate something greater in Jesus. With this interpretive key in mind, here's something that J.I. Packer uh, said that's really challenging. He challenges us not to simply read our Bibles um, with a mindset of, the, of them being separate books. Yes, they're separate books, but read it as a whole. He points out that we tend to read small doses of scripture here and there, waiting for something to strike us, and we miss, we miss the, by doing so, we miss the unity. We miss the flow of, of the single story, the story of redemptive history. Here's what, he, here's what he writes. When the words bring to our minds a soothing thought or a pleasant picture... We feel that the Bible has done its job for us. It seems that the Bible is for us not a book, but a, a collection of beautiful and suggestive snippets. And it is as such that we use it. The result is that we never read the Bible at all. We take it for granted that we are handling holy writ in the truly religious way. But in truth, our use of it is more than a little superstitious interesting choice of words the way we handle god's word in that way looking for little snippets little nuggets little in inspirations of encouragement packer says our use of that is more than a little superstitious that word really jumps out at me challenges me to think how am i approaching god's word Am I, is, you know, is it like a baseball player wearing the same socks because it's, you know, that worked before? Not stepping on the baseline? Keeping to a routine that we think will work for us? Or bless us? Or are we looking with amazement at our sovereign God who reveals his plans, his prophecies, his fulfillments, and the great things that are to come? Are you reading God's word as you read any other book? There's a sense in which you should. Looking for a plot line, seeing the conflict, making the connections that lead to resolution and triumph. This is a main feature uh, that 
Peter presents to his audience, his captive audience. And it relates to the second. Here's the, 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 the second point of biblical, of biblical revelation or what he's saying is that it's, it's Christ-centered. Christ is at the center. Peter takes this opportunity to show that Jesus is at the heart of the Old Testament. Men of Israel, he says. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, did what? Glorified his servant Jesus. Glorified his servant Jesus. The God of the Old Testament, the God of their fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. Peter describes Jesus in two ways here. Glorified and servant. Being a servant, you know, when we hear that, we just think, well, of course, we look and see how Jesus acted and he was, he was humble. He was a servant. And yes, that's true, but it was also prophesied. There are four passages in Isaiah referring to, that are referred to as the servant songs. And Jesus saw himself, can you imagine Jesus growing in stature and wisdom, reading God's word and realizing, this is me? reading these servant songs and this is me. Jesus saw himself as the fulfillment of these servant songs. He understood from these passages in, in Isaiah that this was his purpose for coming into the world. And Peter makes this connection by referring to Jesus as God's servant. Remember, uh, remember also, you know, how did Jesus respond to Uh, James and John, when they asked, Lord, can we have these seats of honor someday in your kingdom? Jesus says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He understood his mission, that he was the fulfillment of the servant songs that spoke of his coming, his mission. A much-loved passage of Scripture is Philippians 2. And Philippians 2 is actually understood to be an early Christian confession or a hymn-like song. Part of it says Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And Peter emphasizes that, that as this servant, Jesus gave his very life as the ultimate sacrifice. He is the ultimate servant of God. Not having his life taken, but willingly giving it to serve. To serve as a payment for our sins. This is not simply a description of Jesus' character, but identifying him prophetically. Another description, that other one that Peter gives, is glorified. God glorified him. Which is also anticipated in the servant songs Isaiah 52 says, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. This servant will be glorified. And Peter is an eyewitness to the glorification of Jesus being that ultimate servant. God glorifying him bodily. Peter, James, and John saw this on the Mount of Transfiguration. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, they saw it. And when he ascended into heaven, into glory, they saw it. God glorified Jesus bodily. And this communicates great things to us. The servant who gave himself as a sacrifice is the first to be glorified in his humanity. In a humanity that will be ours. God created the world and said that it was good. Sin entered into the world. It brought corruption, suffering, death. And God has been telling a story of our eventual glorification. A new heaven and a new earth. One that is good where sin and death shall be no more. And even this healing of a lame man is a taste of it. It points to what God will ultimately do, our hope to come. 
earlier uh, this week in our uh, noon men's group on Wednesday, one of the guys said, or, or he just pointed out, we were talking, salvation was a was at the heart of what we were talking about. And one of the guys said, you know, Christians today tend to think of salvation only in terms of our personal forgiveness. And, and it is, it's true, but that's just a, that's a part of it. It also involves the redemption of all things. It's much, you know, it's personal and yet it's grand. Uh, remember Romans 8 pointed this out last week. It describes creation itself groaning for that day. Jesus is the first fruit of of what we and all of his creation will receive one day. And today we receive in part what one day we will receive in full. Pentecost points to this. It announces the beginning of the end, the last days that will culminate in the final complete glorification of those who are united to God's glorified servant, Jesus. A third feature of Peter's sermon is that salvation involves faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. Obviously, Peter is not sharing some new form of therapy. He's not uh, doing so, and neither should we. When we think of sharing the gospel, that's not at the heart of it. The gospel is about being right with God. And Peter addresses a crowd that desperately needs to be made right with God. And if they're not beginning to, to realize that they need to be right with God... Peter, in this gutsy sermon, points it out to them. He says, you deliver God's servant. You delivered him over. Verse 13, you denied him when Pilate decided to release him. Verse 14, who who did they deny? The holy and righteous one. And And then you asked for a murderer in his place. You killed the author of life. Peter's pointing out, You did this, you did this, you did this. And we might be tempted to think, I'm glad I'm not them. But people today deny Jesus. They deny who he truly is. And what does this do? It belittles him. He's the servant of God. He is the glorified one. He is the savior of the world. And denying that, eh, belittles him. Belittles his sacrificial death, which is able to make us right with God. Faith in Jesus is what led to this lame man's healing. Peter said, by faith in his name, meaning the authority of Jesus, This man is made strong. Jesus is the object of our faith. His name, authority. Jesus has the authority to grant life and healing to those who look to him in faith. He is the object of our faith. And Peter also says, the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health. The faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in Jesus and through Jesus, the object of faith and the source of our faith, the one we trust and the one who graciously gives. Faith and repentance, they go together. Thomas Watson described faith and repentance as being like like two wings of a bird that fly us to heaven. Faith, faith is believing in, looking to, Trusting that Jesus is the only way to to be reconciled with God. When you think of faith looking to, I also think of a a strange Old Testament. You know that strange Old Testament story about the bronze serpent on a pole? The people who are bit by snakes, right? Strangely, that bronze serpent on a pole is Jesus. And that seems offensive, but Jesus became offensive for you. He became a curse for you. And how were these people who were dying of snake bites healed? They looked to him. Faith is looking to Jesus who can save you. 
Faith is believing in him. And repentance understands that we actually need, you know, these, these people who are dying of snake bites, they realize they actually need to look if they're going to live. Repentance understands that we need reconciliation because we're guilty. Both wings are necessary. So Peter isn't simply telling his audience that, that they're rotten because he's mad that they killed his savior, his, his master, his lord, his friend. He's telling them the reality of what they missed and what they've done, that their guilt is against God. And so he tells them to repent, verse 19. Repent. Recognize your offense of sin. And that this sin is against God. If you don't recognize your sin, then why would you need a savior? Or as Jesus said, if you think you're well, you don't need a doctor. I didn't, came, I didn't come to save the righteous. He says to the self-righteous who aren't repenting, who don't see their sin. We need to see sin as a crime. Think of it in terms of, of a crime and something legal, a crime against God. So when Peter says in verse 17, I know you acted in ignorance. He's not cutting them some slack. He's not saying, well, you're ignorant, so you're innocent. That's not what he's saying. Sin is a crime. It's breaking the law. If you're ignorant of the fact of that, that flashing 20 mile an hour sign in a school zone right in front of you if you're just ignoring it and you're ignorant of it and you're driving 80 miles an hour your ignorance is not an alibi you're guilty the law is posted on a sign for us to see so when Peter says that they were ignorant he's not pointing out that they that they should have known as much as God told them the big picture. God told them the big picture in the Old Testament with flashing signs all throughout it. But even this, even the worst possible crime, the murder of God's son, the Messiah, even this can be forgiven. I think that's what he's getting at when he's saying, yes, you are ignorant. He's saying, but God is a merciful God. But you can be forgiven, even you. So repent. We're all guilty of breaking God's law. And in order to be forgiven, we need to repent. Repentance means that we recognize our guilt. That we're sorry for it. That we seek God's forgiveness. And repentance also means that, that, that we turn... It, it's the idea of turning away. You're, you're walking in this direction towards sin. You realize it. You're sorry for it. You ask for forgiveness and you turn away from it, and you turn to Jesus. You can't face north and south at the same time, simultaneously. You're facing one direction or the other. His purpose is to restore his creation, remember? Jesus didn't just die. Here's something else. Jesus didn't just die to keep you out of hell. Being saved is being saved from your sin. A sin which leads to hell. Jesus didn't just die to keep you out of hell. He died in order to redeem you, to change you, to restore his creation. That's the, the bigger theme. And then that bigger theme is true of you in the story. His purpose is not simply your eternal location. It's to save you from the curse of sin. And there's an already and not yet with this as well. The lame man is healed. And one day his healing like yours will be complete. If you're in Christ, your sin has been forgiven. And the desire of your heart has been changed. And one day in glory, you won't even desire that sin anymore. You won't be able to sin anymore. Progressively... As a saved person, you're, you're being sanctified, growing in holiness, still struggling with sin, wanting to be rid of it, 
And one day, no more groaning over it. No more groaning as your redemption will be complete. We're told that when we see him, what? When we see Christ, we will be like him. So there's a sense in which that's true today. But we see through a mirror darkly, dimly. One day we'll see him much more clearly. And it's related to who we are. This is what we should expect in genuine salvation. And already but not yet. A continual turning from sin. Not in order to be forgiven. But because we are forgiven. And Jesus is the direction that we want to go. It's important for us to know this about our salvation. And it's important for us to know this in order to share the gospel with others. Sharing the gospel is not an offer of comfort or purpose or help for the suffering. It's not therapy. Many people are happy and fulfilled without Jesus. They really are. But everyone's guilty. Everyone's guilty of breaking God's law. Everyone has sinned against him. And ignorance is no defense. When we share the gospel, we're not being holier than thou because we, we were as guilty as everyone else. But the guilt can be forgiven and God can save us from our sin. If we're not pointing people to repentance and faith, turning from sin and turning to Christ, we're not sharing the hope and forgiveness that Peter shares here. We're not sharing the gospel. In summary, Peter shows us how to rightly understand the Bible. That from beginning to end, it has to do with Jesus. He shows us that faith in Jesus and repentance from sin are necessary. And finally, he tells us of blessings that we can expect. Oh, they're blessings. Quickly, let me point out three. First, he mentions the obliteration of your sin. Wow. Look at verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back. Turn back to God. Turn from your sin. Turn to God. Repent. Turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The word blotted out has to do with washing. Your sins are washed away. They're wiped away. The same term is used in Revelation when God wipes away our tears. Or that our names will not be wiped out from the book of life. From what I understand, ancient writings on papyrus, the ink that they used didn't have the same acid in it, so it wouldn't bite into the material. It was more on the surface. And so it could be erased, wiped away with a wet sponge. Your sins may be wiped away blotted out, washed away, no more record of them, a clean slate or a clean papyrus forever. Then in Acts 20, Peter gives another, another blessing, mentioning times of refreshing. Ah, oh, that sounds good, doesn't it? Times of refreshing. And as hard as this life may be, salvation blesses us with a taste of what's to come. There's so many good things in life. Even in the suffering and struggle and sadness and depression, in the midst of it, there's times of refreshing, a down payment of what will be ours forever. And as Peter said this, we can imagine this, you know, imagine this healed man who's been leaping around praising God. Now he's clinging to Peter, nodding his head, times of refreshing, yes. A living example of what Jesus can do. And a time of refreshing with greater things to come. Be refreshed in the presence of Christ in your life. Not just... So many Christians have this escapist mentality. They're just hanging in there until Jesus takes them out of here. And that's their mentality. I think that's sad. God blesses us with so many things. He gives us time of refreshing. There is purpose in this life. We're not just waiting around to get taken out. 
be like that early church. What do we see with them? We see, we see love and joy and purpose, devoted to prayer, devoted to God's word, coming together in worship, caring for one another, times of refreshing. God's salvation gives us a taste of what's to come, and what's to come is, is going to be so sweet. Finally, a third blessing that we can expect is the promise of the restoration of all things at the end of the age. Peter's he's speaking to a Jewish audience who wanted a restored national sovereignty. They shouted, Hosanna, expecting a wrong kind of restoration because they had a wrong hermeneutic, a wrong reading and understanding of Scripture, one that missed Jesus. He tells them... He tells them in verse 26, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. He was sent to them first. But remember, Moses spoke of their curse when he said, every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And the restoration that God communicated all along was, again, in their own scriptures, in God's covenant with Abraham, saying, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God's plan of redemption was a plan to bless not only the Jew, but the Gentile as well. A plan that his offspring would be a blessing to all the families, all the nations of the earth, Jesus is the key. He's always been at the center of God's word. And in him, in him alone, we're blessed both now and finally and ultimately when he comes again. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray. Our God, you are amazing. As the people that day were filled with wonder and amazement at a man being healed, fill us with a similar sense of awe. Awe that, that you have sovereignly ordained all that occurs. All of history is your story. Written to tell us of your promise to redeem a people for yourself. and To rid your creation of sin and death. You promised us Jesus in Genesis and gave us many illustrations and prophecies all throughout your word. You are, Lord, a a covenant-keeping God. And you have glorified your servant Jesus. And we pray that that he would be glorified in our lives. Give us a, a hunger for your word. To look, to see Jesus there. To be invested in the greatest story ever. One that involves us and the expectations of great blessings to come. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. We pray together in his great name. Amen.